Hey everyone, welcome to another week of Trashy Divorces. My name is Stacy. Hey friends, I'm Alicia. Thanks for joining us today. We're really happy you're here. Holy cats, in celebration, Stacy, 14 seasons of Trashy Divorces. We have almost 1,000 episodes on Patreon. We do. Isn't that incredible? <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to use two of those episodes this week to bring to y'all with huge thanks and appreciation to our Patreon audience who loves the trash candy as much as we do. Stacy, we've got two scary monsters and super creeps this week. Big thanks to David Bowie to that song. You're bringing us an older story from 2020 about a Supreme Court McJerkface? McJerkface. So back around the time that Amy Coney Barrett was nominated to the court, I had already done a little research into, like, there are certain Supreme Court justices who are known for being, like, there, there are worst lists. So I think that this guy, James Clark McReynolds, he was a justice in the early part of the 20th century. I think he tops most observers' list in terms of just sheer bigotry, cussedness, stern-mindedness, just... He was the full package of all the things you would not want in a colleague. And this comes from your Patreon series that you have a lot of fun with called Trashy Justice. Yes, this was the first installment, which I should do more of because, boy, (laughs) timely. Speaking of timely, you also have something somewhat topical in a bank shot way. Enigmatic, mysterious person. From Russia, with mm-hmm. a lot of history. This kind of is a cult leader. Yeah, from our Trashy Romanov series. Mm-hmm. The Romanov that everybody thinks is probably the super trashiest. Today I'm bringing you the not-at-all-delightful tale of Grigory Rasputin. The goat man of Moscow or something. Wow. Okay. Lots of sinning going on. Fun up today. Before we kick off and get to it with these... Scary monsters and super creeps, Stacy. I got this magic mirror that is full of wonderful people Absolutely. who joined us this week over at patreon.com slash trashy divorces. Thanks so much for joining us over there. Taryn M, Elizabeth F, Michelle B, Helen N, and Jennifer B. Holy cats, y'all are the very, very best. Thank you to you, our existing Patreon supporters, and you for coming back to listen. Mm-hmm. Scary monsters, super creeps. What do we have to do, Stacy? We got to go, go, go. So, Stacey, you're introducing something new into our trash candy connoisseur level? Something a little bit new. I just figured, you know, while American politics wriggles its way through this particularly egregious Supreme Court appointment, not that I don't necessarily find her egregious, I find her views egregious, like, whatever, whatever. And the process is, oh my god, egregious. Just felt like to... Because our minds are there, but also to take our minds off of it a little bit. It seems like a great time to dredge up some dirt on the highest court in the land. And friends, let me assure you, there is SCOTUS dirt aplenty. So welcome to Trashy Justice. Justice, 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 justice. You're so funny. (laughs) Trashy Justice. I love it. I was going to call it like trashy court or something, but no. No, trashy justice justice. is definitely the way to go. Yeah, and I think in this, we're going to not just talk about like figures 
on and around the Supreme Court that are interesting for whatever reason they're interesting, but also some of the, the cases that we all forgot what, right? Like every time there's a new appointment, we all have to go look up like what Plessy v. Ferguson was and what Dred Scott was and what, sure, like, all those kind of seminal cases. So yeah, we're going to, we're going to do a little of that maybe, you know, when the mood strikes, which it may be striking a lot in the future. I love it. Today we're going to talk about a SCOTUS justice who was just deeply and insofar as rampant bigotry is not funny, hilariously awful. He was a racist, a sexist, an anti-Semite big time. And you'll be surprised to hear a profoundly reactionary person whose bone-deep conservatism nearly led FDR to pack the court, i.e. add a bunch of justices who would not stop him from saving the country from the Great Depression in 1937. And this trashy asshole on the court yeah this guy was part of a four justice block who is it his name is james clark mcreynolds it's funny Ah, it's not a name i don't yeah it's not not top of mind james clark mcreynolds was born february 3rd 1862 in elkton kentucky he attended vanderbilt university and then the university of virginia law school he was a bright bright guy he finished i want to say college in one year and law school in 16 months oh wow graduated top of his class in both very sharp guy. That is a lot of ambition. Yeah. For an um, Aquarius. He's a big thinker. Yeah. So top of his class in both, completed his studies in very short order and became a lawyer in 1884 at the age of just 22. Wow. My God, our friends who like struggled through law school, like three years of law school these days would be like, fuck. Okay. He practiced law in Nashville, and by the mid-90s, 1890s, (laughs) he was active in democratic politics in the area, and so I will note that I did not find any direct references to him as a Klansman, but I can't think of how you could be a prominent leader in democratic politics in the 1890s, in Tennessee, where the Klan was founded in the 1890s, and not at least approve of the Klan in a pretty open way. Like, I don't, I don't know, I, I... Googled, it's not part of his official story. But again, tough to see that that wasn't a thing. He wasn't rubbing shoulders. All right. With some guys in robes. Teddy Roosevelt made him assistant attorney general from 1903 to 1907. Oh, TR. And then he left to practice law at a big firm in New York City. I think we would call this like a white shoe firm. Okay. At the time, I think the custom was that I don't think DOJ had this army of lawyers. I'm not sure there was formally a DOJ at the time, to be honest. There was obviously an attorney general, and they must have managed something. But they would basically outsource their work to the big white shoe law firm in New York City. Interesting. So he bailed on the government job for a private practice job, which I'm sure made him a lot more money. But was still doing government work. Yeah. Interesting. So he... That's not a conflict of interest at all. Yeah, I I may have mentioned he's a very smart guy. (laughs) He did a lot of antitrust work. This was like... Teddy Roosevelt was famously like the trust buster. Right. And they were trying to take these like 19th century monopolies and turn them into 20th century competitive markets. Kind of. Sure. (laughs) Funny. (laughs) That all worked out by the 1990s. Um, So he made a name for himself arguing these anti-monopoly cases... On behalf of the government, the Sherman Antitrust Act had become law, I think, in 1890, like not very long before this. Interestingly, his personal beliefs were extremely laissez-faire. Like he really felt like government had no role in private enterprise, private contracts, all of that. I don't know 
if he personally felt that monopolies were anti-competitive and therefore bad, or if he was just arguing the cases before him that he was being paid to argue. Like, I, I really don't okay. know. Fair enough. His jurisprudence later would suggest that he did not actually give a shit about monopolies in particular, but who knows? So far, so good, I guess. In 1913, after successfully prosecuting these monopolies, he was appointed the 48th U.S. Attorney General under Woodrow Wilson. Oh, wow. This story just gets better and better. Who soon realized that McReynolds was a stone-cold asshole and a complete (laughs) pain to work with. Hey, Woodrow Wilson has some good luck, though. The next year, Justice Horace H. Lurton died. There's an opening on the court. Oh, my. And there's your piece of shit Attorney General that you cannot stand. Let me give you a promotion. That's what happened. Why do we promote white men up to move him not out gracefully out of his cabinet so he didn't have to deal with his bullshit anymore? Wow. Wilson appoints. I can solve this problem. Wilson appoints McReynolds to the United States Supreme Court, (laughs) where he will spend the next 27 years of his life. And he distinguished himself there in many, many ways. He was outstandingly lazy, for one. And would usually wait to read the briefs that had been filed in a case until the morning of arguments. Just oh, that's okay. Familiarize himself with, with his day. That is some laissez-faire jurisprudence. When he wrote opinions, which he did 506 times, uh, in addition to 157 dissents, like 90, some of those were against the New Deal. Wow. He would often jot them out in a couple of hours, skipping all that lengthy research and drafting stuff that the other justices would do. Like, what a waste, <laughs> waste of, of time. time. Losers. It's a, it's a busy man. Losers and sucker judges. This man had a lot going on. McReynolds was an avid duck hunter, and he would sometimes just leave town during session. What? With or without explanation or notice to the chief justice. Gone ducking? And sometimes he wouldn't even turn in, like, his dissent or his thinking on the... Like, he would just, like, see ya. Wouldn't want to be ya. Duck Got season open. I gotta go. Ducks, ducks, ducks. Wow. So the chief justice apparently shared many of his views on the... Like, they were kind of... In love of duck hunting? No, no. They were, like, kind of co-travelers as, like, as judges, as, okay. as justices. But the chief justice, uh, Taft, hated him hated him okay more on the duck hunting oh god as someone who was occasionally roused from bed at 4 a.m as a child to accompany my father into a swamp in the middle of winter to duck hunt i can tell you it has its miseries we did not have a dog to retrieve for us and neither did mcreynolds oh. no no mcreynolds had a servant <gasps> A man named Henry Parker. No. Who he made to join him on these frolics. No. And who he sent out into ice cold water to retrieve his ducks for him. Like his dog. In lieu of a dog. (sighs) McReynolds is a trash bag. He had a particular hatred of tobacco. And interestingly, one of the major antitrust cases he fought as a lawyer at the firm in New York City was against a tobacco trust. So I don't know if these relate. I don't know if he came into this with a hatred of tobacco and was like, I'm going to take that company down. I don't know. But interesting. I'm sure he talked just like that, too. All right. (laughs) Probably most assuredly. He hated tobacco. (laughs) He ordered that his staff could never touch tobacco, even in their free time, even in off hours. He would also stipulate. It slows you down when you go to get the ducks in the field. He also 
told them where they could live. Oh. Like a, a good boss does. Wow. Um, one time he disowned a nephew. McReynolds never married, so he had he had no spouse, no kids of his own. But he disowned a nephew when the child woke him up by playing jazz music on the radio. I'm guessing he was taking a nap. And I guess kid, not smooth jazz then. The kid flips on the radio and it's that black music. <gasps> and so nephew was... wonder if he was gay. wonder if it's any of that seated... Like, I'd, I'm Obviously, just kind it, of curious if you've never married in that day and age. I had the same thought. And you're that... Bigoted? Yeah, that's a good word for you're it. You're that hemmed in by your own biases? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Not part of his biography? Interesting. Okay, all of this, though, all that we've already said, that is just for starters. Oh, okay? no. That's not the trashy part. The The nightmare bigot part is here. Okay, so he referred to FDR as, quote, that crippled son of a bitch in the White House. Oh, my God. He was desperately anti-Semitic. He refused to speak to Justice Louis Brandeis, who was Jewish, for the first three years that Brandeis was on the court. He ordered his staff to steer clear of Brandeis's staff. During conferences, when Brandeis would speak, McReynolds would just get up and leave the room if he was just going on for too long. He just wasn't going to hear that Jew talk. Just got up and walked out? Oh, my God. Yeah. When Herbert Hoover was considering appointing Benjamin Cardozo, another Jewish justice, McReynolds urged him not to, quote, afflict the court with another Jew. Will justice ever be served? When Hoover ignored him and made the appointment anyway, McReynolds is said to have remarked, Huh, it seems that the only way you can get on the Supreme Court these days is to be either the son of a criminal or a Jew or both. (gasps) (laughs) This guy's horrible. Horrible. McReynolds pointedly read a newspaper during Cardozo's swearing-in and throughout their tenure on the court. When Cardozo read an opinion, McReynolds generally had some very important papers to stare at. Oh, God. He also refused to sign opinions authored by Brandeis, in case you thought we were done with that. Oh! There's no official photograph of the justices for 1924, because the court is seated in order of seniority for those things, and it would have required McReynolds to sit next to Brandeis. You are kidding me. We can't even take a picture because you're a bigoted ass? Apparently, this story is disputed. Um, there had been no change between 23 and 24 in the makeup of the court, and so some say like he just didn't see the point in wasting time taking the picture because nothing had changed. It was the same people. Okay, but you become and grow you you've grown more bigoted since then why don't we want to have a yeah photographic memory so 1938 benjamin cardozo uh, died while still serving on the bench mcreynolds did not attend his funeral when fdr nominated aclu founder felix frankfurter to fill the seat mcreynolds exclaimed my god another jew on the court oh god he did not attend Frankfurter's swearing in, uh, but Aww. he was not just anti-Semitic. No, no. Wait, there's more. He was also super racist. Uh. So you'll remember his servant, Harry Parker, the retriever of cold swamp ducks. Yeah. You will be stunned to learn the man was black. I, I, at one point, yeah. one of his clerks became good friends with Harry Parker and McReynolds was like, you are aware that this man is a Negro. Yes. <gasps> And like, really, no. I don't see color. <laughs> we saw color. Wow. We saw color. We saw faith. We saw... 
1938, uh, Charles Hamilton Houston, the dean of Howard University Law School, a Harvard-educated black lawyer, one of the preeminent right. lawyers and black lawyers in the country, came before the court to argue a case about desegregating the University of Missouri Law School. Okay. The case was Gaines v. Canada. McReynolds turned his chair around so he would not look at Hamilton. That's fucking rude. He would not have to look at the black lawyer before the Supreme Court of the United States of America. We have come so far and not and at all. Not far enough. He was also really into women excelling in the law. You'll be sarcastically surprised to hear. Okay, go ahead. Just did a quick quick double take on that. Such that on the rare occasion when a woman would bring a case before the court, he would mutter, I see the female is here again, <gasps> before simply walking out. No. Oh, I yes. see the female is here again. Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. Uh, he thought that men who wore wristwatches were effeminate. Oh. And he thought that red fingernail polish on women signaled harlotry. And he would have none of that. Aside, oh, my God. Oh, yeah. Aside from his personal bigotries, he was also part of the, the, the four horsemen, was what they were called, who took direct aim at the New Deal policies that were designed to stabilize the economy and help people who had lost everything in the Great Depression. McReynolds did not think the government had the right to, say, impose laws against child labor. Okay. Uh, he believed that a federal minimum wage violated the due process clause of the Fifth Amendment. Oh, sure. By violating the right to make private contracts. Okay. This era of conservative judicial activism was known as the Lochner era, based on a 1905 case, Lochner v. New York. And in the 40 years between 1897 and 1937, the Lochner era, the court consistently invalidated laws that it believed impeded the free market. When conservatives wax nostalgic about the, the glorious past, the Lochner era is really what they're what their little fantasy brains sure um, are envisioning. Yeah, it's they have not thought it through. Seriously, child labor laws like they haven't thought it through. It came to an end in 1937 when there was a real crisis, the Great Depression. There was real leadership attempting to combat the effects of the Great Depression. And there was real public support for the elected officials who were trying to take charge and solve the problem. Exactly. Right? So this is... There is, like, I have it in my mind that conservatism is really just incapable of addressing crises. Like, it, it, it does okay if nothing particularly is happening. But the second you hit yeah, it's not a roadblock, conservatism sure. fails immediately. That's it. So, in that year, 1937, um, FDR had seen some significant reversals of New Deal legislation in the 1935 and 1936 court seatings. So the president announced a plan, the court reform bill, which would expand the court to as many as 15 justices. Fantastic. And the neuter the four horsemen, basically. Great. In the months after Congress began debating this legislation, and it was hugely controversial, and it is not clear that it would have actually passed even in a highly democratically controlled House and Senate. This was, this was a lightning rod. So the way the court broke down, there were the four horsemen... There were two moderates, and then there were the three liberal musketeers. Okay. And what had been happening this is, is that fascinating. those two moderates would typically split their votes, uh, leading to five four decisions mm -hmm. with the four horsemen sure. in the in the majority. As the court packing plan 
started to take shape, the moderates were like, oh, oh, hell, this is very dangerous. Leading to a, a cultural event, if you will say, a legal cultural event called the switch in time that saved nine. So the two moderates began consistently siding with the liberals on the court for 5-4, four uh, FDRs. Interesting. Mm-hmm, because the chief justice decided that he would rather preserve a nine-person court then, and, and allow greater, which again had huge sure. public support for greater activism on the part of government. Then try to expand to 15. Then, yeah, then like have the court kind of blown up in that way. So this is Trashy and it, justice. Well, and it has so many parallels to what we're looking at right now. Interesting. Yeah, it really does. Um, because, again, one of the solutions that people are pushing now is like, let's have 11 justices. I say let's have 25. I, we have not expanded this in a century or more. Like, mm-hmm. we just, we should have a bigger, more diverse government. The people who run this place ought to look more like us, right? Okay. Agreed. Later in 1937, one of the four horsemen retired, allowing FDR to build a durable majority. Oh, great. More willing to allow his intervention in social and economic affairs. Okay. McReynolds left the court in 1941, just retired. He, he was an okay. He'd been on 27 years yeah. and he was no longer. Now he was just, he was a dissent factory for fighting all of Anything these. Anything progressive. Intervention, Yeah. yeah. He died alone in a hospital in D.C. on August 24th, 1946, and was buried back in Elkton, Kentucky, with a funeral that no justices attended. No, really? Straight up sent their regrets? Yeah, yeah, here's some flowers. I don't know. Like, apparently one court employee traveled to Kentucky to attend, but none of the justices bothered. He was a complete dick to them. Yeah, no, I get it. That makes sense. All right, Harry Parker, the long-suffering Duck black retriever. attendant of McReynolds, yeah. um, himself would die in 1953. Uh, McReynolds' brother visited Harry Parker in the hospital in the days leading up to his death. And for Parker's funeral, half a dozen justices were there, <gasps> including the chief. Six showed up. Mm-hmm. Well, that um, is, and that tells a bunch of the story A lot right of story. There. It's mm-hmm. also worth noting... Um, so one thing that McReynolds was known for in D.C. was his hospitality, and he frequently hosted Sunday brunches that were, I think there was also a, a Christmas party that was kind of the talk of the town. Like, okay. he wasn't without his charms. Sure. He was just a professional tyrant. Well, unless you were a duck. Well, one so one, right, one detail that I saw was that um, Alice Roosevelt, Franklin's uh-huh. daughter, yeah, perhaps? Yeah, yeah, She's super trashy. I love her. Well, when she married... She was so enamored of the cooking at McReynolds' soirees that she requested his cook, Mrs. Parker, who maybe was Harry Parker's wife. Okay. uh, Like, do the food for her wedding. Um, Interesting. Yeah. So I do, I feel like the Parkers are the real heroes of the story. Yeah. Like, had really good, I don't know, like, connections and influence in in so far as they were obviously... um, african-american servants in, a, in the weird way that hollywood is connected in ten thousand ways so is dc yeah exactly yeah. um so yeah i mean it was a super racist time and all that but it sounds like the parkers were super popular among very powerful people 
That is remarkable. And their boss, their asshole boss, was not at all. So that, friends, is our first installment of Trashy Justice. 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 That was awesome. That was amazing. Our sound effects budget is, uh, I, we're really kicking Zero. it Zero <laughs> is what that is. Hey, speaking of trashy justice, uh-huh. can I share something that I saw today? Oh, yeah. That warmed my heart that does mm-hmm. kind of bend on this. Sorry. Great job, Stacy. Really well done <laughs> with that story. I don't want to steal your thunder. No, no. But, but I did want to remember this. Yeah. So there is a lady named Chelsea Van Voorhees. And I saw this on a post. Like this is the this is the trashiest best thank you letter that's ever going to happen. So Chelsea posts last year. I made a custom wooden descent collar for Ruth Bader Ginsburg as a gift. I included a letter explaining the gender bias, sexual harassment I endured in the workplace, and how she inspired me. She worked so incredibly hard, but still found time to send me a signed thank you note. It is the highest honor I've ever and probably ever will receive. Would you like to hear this thank you note? Yes. It is, it's the classiest thank you note that I have ever read. I'm so in love with this. This is dated December 10th, 2019. To Chelsea Van Voorhees. For today's wonderful surprise, a thousand thanks. The wooden collar is a gift to treasure. I will wear it again and again at court sittings. With appreciation for your artistry and cheers on your persistence, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. P.S. Small souvenir enclosed. And she put in a little um, descent collar pin Aww. that I guess she sent like as her. Yeah, as her thank gift. you. Yeah. The classiest thank you note yeah. you've ever heard. What a great way to sign off with appreciation for your artistry and cheers on your persistence. Mm. Ruth Bader. One of a kind. Trashy, trashy justice forever. I love it so hard. That was great. Thanks, Stacy. You're very welcome. Thanks for that. Wasn't that an, I make you feel a little we're bit We're all still in mourning. Yeah. yeah, we're going to be in Must mourning be for a while. Yeah. All right. Well, that is Trashy Justice. I'm very excited about that. I love these weird stories about prominent Americans that we've forgotten because they were so terrible. Ter- that guy um, sounds terrible. Terrible. But I mean... You know, Loose Women is also, like, such a fun exploration of, of these, like, flagrantly doing-it-their-own-way women. Mm-hmm. Like, I the the opportunities to find these stories and tell them, is it's so nourishing for me. So, And we get to do it because of y'all, Trash Pandas. We do. Thank you. Thank you Thank for you. your support and your love and your generosity and your artistry and your persistence. We appreciate you forever. Forever. Clean hands. Trashy heart. Always. Cheers, friends. Go find some justice of your own today. Make it trashy justice. 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 Bye, y'all. Bye. <laughs> ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. 
If you have been thinking about your financial situation, if you've been brewing questions you would like to ask a financial professional, if you would like some guidance on addressing debt, investing, or other general financial organization, then in the immortal lyrics of Amy Ray, I said it's time. Don't assume anything, just go, go, go. 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 To theoaktreegroup.net. There you will find the contact information for three holistic financial planners that have been working together for over 17 years. Kelly, Eileen, and Ellen will tailor a financial strategy for your unique goals and circumstances. You can also give them a call at 770-319-1700 to schedule your free one-hour consultation. They would never use your years to psych you out. Again, the phone number is 770-319-1700, and the website is www.theoaktreegroup.net. Go, go, go! To the exciting conclusion of Trashy Romanovs. We're here. Who oh. do you, who do you, you've got the... The, the one everybody's been yeah, waiting for. Come true. on, come on. The trashiest Romanov The legendary. He's not even a Romanov, but he's legendary. He's legend, wait for it, dairy. So legendary. Today we are here to talk about Rasputin. Good lord. Uh, y'all, Ross Butin could be 10 episodes of his own podcast, so if I do not mention your favorite Ross Butin fun fact, I'm very, very sorry. Wanted to get in as high level of an overview as I could so we could wrap up Trashy Romanovs because you're going to bring us back next week with a whole brand new Trashy de Medici's, but oh, don't God. don't downplay. You at least get into how unkillable he was, right? 100%. Yeah, okay. I'm just saying. I, like, I, there's I, a lot of Rasputin fun facts. We're just going to gloss over Rasputin today. That's it. That's the end. And See next ya. week, Italians. <laughs> Big thanks to Melissa O. She did uh, an, ex- an extraordinary job on this story. So the first thing we want to talk about is why is Rasputin connected to the Romanov family? Empress Alexandra, the wife of the Tsar, who's is, English, right? She's a granddaughter mm-hmm. of Victoria. Vicky mm-hmm. yeah. is desperate to heal her son Alexei from hemophilia, which he got from his grandma. He inherited the disease from his mother. Alexei did, and so Alec- uh, Alexandra feels terrible. She feels really guilty, and she knows how crucial it is for Russia to have an heir. Remember, they have four girls before they have Alexei. Mm-hmm. Very few people know that the boy is ill. Is sickly. I mean, that's the... Mm-hmm. Right, they they were really hoping for, like, a, a strong son. And, yeah, they ended up with a guy who, like, every time he bumps against a table, yeah. he develops bleeding in his joints. It's terrible. Like, it's terrible. Well, like, even the Romanov family, like, even members in their own family didn't know exactly how sick he was. Okay. Certainly the general population of Russia doesn't know that the boy is suffering from a fatal illness. Uh, had they known, it would we- weaken, right, the power of the Romanov yeah, family. Yeah, for sure. And as we've learned, Russian history is very stable with no power plays playing out. So, Well, without the knowledge that Alexei's sick, courtiers and people of Russia will begin to speculate their own particular reasons for the odd behavior of the royal family. 
Now, sometimes it's just better to say like, hey, this is what we're up against. But they didn't. One of the most gossiped about rumors of this time was the relationship between Empress Alexandra and Grigori Rasputin. The close connection with Rasputin would be a major contributing factor to the ultimate downfall of the Romanov dynasty. But let's talk about Grigori. Mm-hmm. He's born, yeah. Mm-hmm. January 21st, 1869, into a peasant family in Siberia. His parents have seven children before him. All of them die in childbirth or infancy. So Rasputin, Grigori, right? He's already believed to be somewhat of a miracle child. Like, okay. Early on, he claims to have mystical healing powers and would eventually claim to be the second coming of Christ. Yeah, this is a lot like if Benny Hinn ended up in the circles of the powerful. He's a, he's, you would know him if you saw him. He is a televangelist who, uh, like, you know, does the whole oh, touch I of heal yeah. you. He's a faith healer, okay. televangelist, um, had an affair with Paula White, probably. Well, in the Siberian peasant farming village, there are some who believe Rasputin to be able to heal their animals. I heal you. So he's a veterinary healer. Mm-hmm. That's good. That's helpful. Mm-hmm. And they'd call to him to come when there was illness in the family the or... chicken is clucking strangely. ...amongst the animals. Others believe that he is not the healing powers of Christ. He is, in fact, the Antichrist. Sure. That, that happens. Whatever way you go, locals believe that he had supernatural powers for good or for ill. In his teens and early 20s, Rasputin is engaged in very bad behavior and builds quite a reputation for drinking, stealing, and womanizing. He eventually will marry, have four kids. Uh, Not a great husband, pretty terrible husband. He is abusive. He's alcoholic and he constantly cheats on his wife. Plus, he thinks he's the second coming of Jesus, so... That's got to that's be hard. Like, I, they don't even change the toilet paper roll. Uh, this was not the reason that he and his wife would separate, though, or he would become separated from his family. It wasn't until Rasputin had stolen a horse and word got out that he was a thief, which was a really serious offense at the time, more mm-hmm. serious than alcoholism, abuse, or cheating. Sure. Instead of sticking around to face his punishment... Rasputin is going to go play hideout in a Christian monastery. See, the horse was sick. (laughs) And Gregory just was going to take it to his faith healing animal hospital and help. People just don't understand. Okay, so he he abandons his family for the monastery. Mm -hmm. But... I don't know. Maybe to that avoid was... being whipped or right. burned or whatever. Is yeah, the that was a little too much clean living. So then he's going. <laughs> oh, God. All right. So then Grigori joins a cult named Clistes. Now Clistes is a cult. It's an offshoot of the Russian Orthodox religion, but it is not Orthodox. It is the it is un or it is un as unorthodox as you can go. The Clistes believe that salvation can only happen through one way, and that is the most amount of sinning possible. S-I-N, all capital letters. So they would engage in sin and then helpfully punish each other to purge out the sin. Wow. Okay. 
I feel like there are takes on that in various religions around the world. So, well, okay. Would you like to hear some examples? I would okay. very much. They would choke one another, then let go only at the very last minute to get high on asphyxiation. Then they'd drink, do drugs, speak in tongues, spinning and dancing until they were in a frenzy. And then the massive orgy would begin. Excellent. So they a little dervishy. Okay. Another interesting philosophy of the Cleistes cult, just to make the orgies a little bit more fun, is that they're not allowed to bathe. Oh. Okay. I mean, okay. I mean, considering all the other things they were doing, you can imagine the result of this policy. Rasputin will also put shackles on his legs when he walks around from village to village, uh, proselytizing in atonement for his sins. I mean, sins that he was going to engage again whenever he found his crew to partake in the sins he wanted to engage in. That's how you purge them, Alicia. So after this conversation, Rasputin becomes a self-proclaimed by himself. He proclaims Mm -hmm. himself a holy man. Indeed. And now he begins dressing like a monk. It's because he's purged all the sins. And traveling around the country, getting closer to God mm-hmm. via his constant sinning. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It is important to note here, he has no official position in the Russian Orthodox Church. He's a freelancer. He is a free, he is a self-appointed mm-hmm. freelancer. Okay. Okay. He's, he's a, a lifestyle blogger. <laughs> An influencer. <laughs> So one thing I always noted about Rasputin was that his eyes were frighteningly intense. He was actually able to, fun fact, dilate his eyes at will, making them appear almost fully black, which not only terrified the people, but mesmerized them as well. Now, despite his very strange appearance and behavior, Rasputin will earn some praise from very high-level priests with powerful connections. After meeting with the priest, convincing them that he had healing abilities sent directly from God, he told them that the Virgin Mary appeared to him regularly, and the Virgin Mary told him to go to St. Petersburg to help the royal family. Okay. The high-level priests are like, that sounds legit, man. Mother Mary comes to you, speaking words of wisdom, go to the royal family. They agree this is a great idea, and they make the appropriate introductions. It is astonishing how popular Rasputin becomes amongst Russian aristocrats in St. Petersburg. They don't care about the rules or being polite. They don't care that he's smelly AF. He smells like a goat. He's also noted to pick his nose and eat it in front of people while dining with them. Gregory. Doesn't matter at all. Gregory, anyway. Because the aristocratic women like to engage in orgies with him because they think... It brings them closer to God. I Uh would like to buy a time machine and a (laughs) bottle of rubbing alcohol and just send it back for these poor, poor women. Eat your boogers and you smell like a goat. Just like I'm going to fuck you. Hose him down. To get closer to God. Rubbing alcohol. Let him dry. Don't let him smoke while he's drying with the rubbing alcohol. Okay. All right. Everybody take a breath. Alexandra's first spiritual advisor. His name is Dr. Philippi. I'm just going with the Ryan pronunciation here. 
Felipe. It, it could be Felipe. It could be Philippe. It could be Philippe. Okay. I don't know. Dr. Philippe, who believed Alexandra was responsible for the last son, after four daughters. It's all Alexandra. Alexandra really loves Dr. Philippe, but he dies. Okay? Leaving a gap. On Dr. Philippe's deathbed, he'll tell Alexandra that she'll meet another holy man very soon to take his place. And Alexandra is eager, wishing and hoping and thinking and praying that this new holy man is, smells like a goat, Rasputin. Now, of course, Alexandra had heard... Just soap, guys. Just soap. (laughs) She'd heard the stories of his miraculous healing abilities, and she desperately wanted help for her son, Alexei. So on their first meeting, Rasputin makes the doctors leave Alexei while he prays over him. He told them that he would soon heal if the doctors would not be allowed to treat him anymore. So he tells, you need to let the doctors go. Medical advice does no good here. It's all me for the kid now. And the Tsar and Tsarina agree, and Alexei does heal very quickly. Modern scientists and doctors believe this happened because the royal doctors were prescribing Alexei large doses of aspirin. Mm. Right? Not known at the time that aspirin thins blood, which, of course, makes his homophilia worse. Hemophilia. I'm sorry. When I say homophilia, (laughs) it's been a long day already. Gregor. (laughs) But by not giving the kid aspirin, right, right, the hemophilia, pardon me on that one earlier, uh, he gets better. Well, naturally, now Rasputin becomes a regular fixture in the palace. And the Tsar and Tsarina trust him implicitly. You've healed, you know, you're healing our child. Mm -hmm. Tsar Nicholas grows very dependent on Rasputin uh, to the point where Rasputin is supplying Tsar Nicholas drugs like opium and morphine and cocaine uh, with with a prescription. God told me to give these to you because they will help you with your various ailments. Absolutely. As opium and cocaine do. Well, often, um, yeah, yeah, not drugs that are non-addictive. So the more that <laughs> Nicholas does these drugs, the more he wants Rasputin to come over and hang out and bring him more drugs. Alexandra, for her part, has migraines and terrible anxiety. And Rasputin seems to be the only one who could take away her pain and get her to relax. You know what cures a migraine? Opium. <laughs> I mean, I assume I. It's I mean not a bad place to start, I guess. Nicholas and Alexandra are called Mama and Papa by Rasputin. Now Rasputin's hanging out a bunch. He begins to pray with the children at night and tells them bedtime stories. Now the nanny is like, uh, you have four teenage girls here, and I don't think this is cool. Uh, yeah. Uh, the nanny suggests very helpfully that maybe Rasputin, smelly goat, nose picker dude, should not be left alone with their teenage girls, especially at night. Mm-hmm. That's weird. Did they disallow Rasputin from the girls' bedroom? I'm going to guess no, they did not. They fired the nanny. <laughs> This is all going well. One of the maids at the family home as well claimed that Rasputin had raped her. She was fired Uh, as well. Yeah. Well, okay. 
can't have women making up stories like that. Now, when Rasputin isn't hanging out doing whatever he's doing at the royal palace, the royal family will set him up his own little sweet place in St. Petersburg for when Rasputin was not with them. Sure. Now, many women came to visit him at his sweet fuck pad, and for whatever reason, they find him attractive. Maybe it's his dilation eye gaze. Maybe it's his 13-inch long penis. Who knows? Could, you know, either one, really. There was one noblewoman, Olga, Olga Loktina, that was particularly devoted to Rasputin. So much so that she'll ditch her family, her husband and family, and just move in with them. She forces everyone who comes over to their apartment to call him God. Ah, Again, more healthy dynamics. Witnesses opened their back door, which overlooked Rasputin's apartment courtyard, to see Olga holding Rasputin's penis and screaming, You are Christ and I am yours. Yeah, good stuff. This drew attention. Did it? (laughs) That's interesting. And eventually many people are kind of suspicious about Rasputin. Some close to the royal family will order the police to begin following him around. We're getting some real, real shady, uh... Yeah. Yeah. They soon learn on their investigation, their private investigation detail, that Rasputin would hire prostitutes and bring them to a bathhouse where he would beat them with his belt to beat the sin out of them. He then would have sex with the woman that he had just beaten. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Several times, he has witnessed leaving the bathhouse, holding his head and screaming at the demons that he could feel inside of him. Not surprisingly, Rasputin was also taking a lot of drugs. I was going to say. So all those holy priests who encouraged Rasputin just, you know, a little bit before. Yeah. Are now mm, kind of backing away a little bit. Getting a little concerned, maybe backpedaling. I never saw that side of him. Maybe they don't want their own reputation or credibility to be harmed. I figured with that smell, there was no way he was getting any, but... Well, one of these priests decides he's got a great idea. So he's going to come and see Rasputin and going to beat him with a giant wooden crucifix to get the demons out of him. Mm. Mm-hmm. Which I'm sure Rasputin just enjoyed. Come on. Like, that's not punishment. Dude, aim for the head. Let me sit you in a field of flowers and daisies and care bears aim, and see aim for how... the head. Yeah, okay. Afterward, he did not aim for the head. Rasputin goes to Tsarina Alexandra and claims the priest was trying to murder him. Maybe he did aim for the head. So the priest was exiled to uh-huh. Siberia. Sure. Okay. Now, as the number of enemies rose around the court. In St. Petersburg, life starts to get a little bit more dangerous and complicated for our mad monk. There are many assassination attempts prior to him actually being murdered. Assassination attempt number one. Stabbing and intestine removal. Mm -hmm. There's a priest named Iliador who believes that Rasputin is the Antichrist and needs to be destroyed. So, Iliador does the only thing he could do, which is hire a sex worker... A disfigured sex worker Hmm. to kill Rasputin. I mean, this poor woman, Keonia, has had her nose cut off. So there's just a gaping hole in the middle of her face. Now, Rasputin has gone home to visit his family for a little while. 
and it was determined that his rural village would be a perfect place to kill him, right? Rasputin's coming home. Mm-hmm. He stole the horse all those years ago. Certainly people are out for him. Sure, here. sure. So, noseless sex worker goes to the village, waits outside of Rasputin's home, and when he sees her, Rasputin does, he walks over and begins preaching the gospel to her. She responds by stabbing him in the abdomen repeatedly. When he doesn't appear to be dying from his wounds, she literally digs her hands into his stomach and pulls out his intestines. Ironically, but unrelatedly, this happens the same day as the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand, which sparks World War I. But does Rasputin die? No. He's taken to a Siberian hospital where he will make a full recovery. Uh, he, you know, he's been purging demons, so... As he's recovering in the hospital, he is unable, naturally, to attend the royal family and give advice to the Tsar and Tsarina in person, but he will send a letter pleading with them to stay out of the war. He wrote, we will all drown in blood. The disaster is great. The misery infinite. Well, poor Tsarina. Much to Alexandra's dismay, the Tsar, her husband, does not listen to Rasputin. He will leave to fight with the Russian soldiers, Nicholas does, leaving Alexandra alone in the palace, which turns out to be a disaster. Once Rasputin heals from being stabbed and having his intestines pulled out of his body, he'll return to the palace and was closer than ever before to our fair Tsarina. He's her right-hand man. He's basically Tsar by proxy and making all the important decisions. Rasputin will personally appoint several ministers of the interior, but since he was completely uneducated about politics... He appoints completely incompetent people to very, very powerful positions. A little update on history for you. World War I, uh, devastation. Mm-hmm. Soon the country had had enough of the bloodshed. The Russian Revolution will now begin. Rasputin's health will begin to decline, and he loses his ability to heal people. Mm. Oh, no. But horses? Could he still heal horses? I I don't know. He wrote in his journal that he knew he would die soon and he was fine with it. He believed God was about to make him a sacrifice to save the Russian people, similar to Jesus Christ dying on the cross. Friend, let me tell you how that turned out. He'll write to Tsarina Alexandra. If one of your relations brings upon my death, then none of your family will remain alive for more than two years. They will all be killed by the Russian people. Tell your relatives that I have already paid for them in my blood. I shall be killed. I am no longer among the living. Pray and be strong. Da-da. I mean, but it would be someone in her family that would bring about his death, and his prediction will come true. Her entire family would be murdered inside of two years. Whew. Assassination attempt number two. Cyanide poisoning. The Tsar and the Tsarina have a nephew, Felix. And Felix is a man that openly admits to wanting to kill Rasputin if he's not taken out of power. But he's not alone, Felix. Everybody wants to kill Rasputin. Felix has a wife, Irina, and she's one of the most beautiful women in St. Petersburg. And Felix and Irina are rumored to have a very active and adventurous sex life. As a ploy to lure Rasputin into his home, Felix invites Rasputin over 
so he could heal his wife, Irina, of her sexual addiction. Catnip. Felix is not working alone. There are a lot of people in on this plot with him. Oh, my God. So they pick Rasputin up in a car and mm-hmm. take him to the mansion. And they're calling the orgy that's supposed to ensue a healing ceremony. But they lead Rasputin into the basement first to give him food and wine. And all of the food and drink is poisoned with cyanide. And after a few minutes, they can't believe that Rasputin isn't dead yet because of, you know, all the cyanide. Not only isn't he not dead, he's not even showing any signs of distress. So now the plotters get a little nervous, like, well, shit, maybe he is super, like, supernatural. Mm -hmm. Maybe uh, we didn't give him enough poison to kill him. Felix is like, not a problem. I got this. Felix is going to go get a gun. Right. Okay. So Felix comes back into the basement with his revolver and Rasputin just stares at him unwaveringly while... Not dying of cyanide poisoning? Yeah. Points the gun directly at Rasputin and Felix is completely unnerved by this point but manages to shoot the gun. Rasputin falls and doesn't move for a moment. Felix walks over to the body to ensure that Rasputin is dead. Felix then feels an enormous sense of dread when Rasputin opens his eyes and, although injured, begins to attack Felix. Felix runs upstairs to tell his friends that the mad monk had come back to life. I mean, it's a good, like, there's a reason why the guy is legendary. Like, he, he genuinely survived stuff that he should not have survived. All of Felix's friends run back downstairs to the basement to see the resurrection of Rasputin. Rasputin's gone. Gone. He had crawled up the stairs and was across the courtyard. The entire group now shoots him in the head and riddles him with bullets. Confident that he was actually dead, they shove his body into the trunk of a car and drive him up the river where they shove him into a hole in the ice. And where did he pop up next? (laughs) Well, when his body was later found, his hands were up like he was attempting to escape the ice, and there was water in his lungs, suggesting he was still breathing when he died. After hearing this story, many people feared that Rasputin would come back to life again and torment them, so they dug up his body and buried the remains. But before they did that, they cut off and preserved his penis in a jar, as the Russians do love to do. Didn't shave the penis, by the way. Oh, my God. That penis is now in a St. Petersburg museum because what the fuck, Russia? What the fuck? I I don't understand, but okay. The royal family was obviously devastated to learn the news of Rasputin's murder. Hey, it was just going to get worse from there. (laughs) When Alexandra learned that it was a member of the Romanov family who had killed him, she felt certain they were all doomed Sadly, soon after Rasputin's death, his prophecy does come true. The entire Romanov family was executed during the Bolshevik Revolution. I think there's definitely an episode follow-up on the sad, sad tale of that family. But that today ends our episode of the strange and unbelievable tale of Grigory Rasputin and the end of the Romanov dynasty and his 13-inch weird-ass life and dick um if you would like to learn more about the history of 
hemophilia from a medical point of view, this podcast will kill you has a very good uh, episode about it that gets into like hemophilia has consistently been tied to whatever the local prejudice of the day was, except for Victorian England, where basically doctors got very savvy to the fact that Queen Victoria had children who had hemophilia, which meant, of course, that they were morally blameless. <laughs> we did also do a few episodes on mm-hmm. this on our own Patreon. I brought diseases. Yeah, as related to different royal families that mm-hmm. we've talked about, not only in the English line, but the French line, other lines as well. So, yeah. Woohoo! That's Ross Butin. That's going to bring us right now, at least, to the end of Trashy Romanovs. That's number eight. Holy cats. When we come back next week, we're coming, but you're going to come back mm-hmm. with... Oh, my gosh. Um, the greatest banking... The greatest religio-banking family in the history of Florence. Poisoners, too. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's got a little everything. De Medici's. Oh, they're trashy. I think we're going to start at the beginning. So good. Hey, thanks, everybody, Mm -hmm. for tuning in to this wild ride of Romanovs. I hope you enjoyed that. We will be back next week with a whole new royal dynastic line. Trashy royals. Oh, my God. Trashy style for you. Y'all have a tremendous rest of the week. Big love to you. Talk soon. Clean hands. Trashy hearts. Mm -hmm. Bathe. Seriously. Don't pick your bugs at the table. And eat them? God. Um, bye, everyone. Dicks in jars. I got nothing. Bye, friends. <laughs> ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at caskers.com. And thanks to you for listening. Trashy Divorces is a Hemlock Creatives production created and produced right here in Atlanta, Georgia by us, Stacy and Alicia with a little research and writing help from the brilliant Melissa O. Our art is by Sydney V. Smith. That's Sydney V. Smith at carbonmade.com. And our music is used with permission of Ratsy. Check her out at Ratsy's store on Instagram. And definitely drop into Ratsy's store anytime you're in Oberlin, Ohio. You can contact us at trashydivorces at gmail.com or find us on the World Wide Web at trashydivorces.com. If you need more trash candy in your life, our Patreon community includes some of the very best humans around and thousands of hours of bonus content at every level of support. Join the fun at patreon.com slash trashydivorces. Interested in some Trashy Divorces swag? Check out our merch shop and Trash Panda Enthusiasm Society at bit.ly slash trashy gear. Want to advertise with us? Reach out to sales at advertisecast.com for more information. And last but not least, come play with us on social media. I keep most of our Trashy Divorces Instagram hopping. Stacy and I share it up over on Facebook, including our Trashy Divorces podcast discussion group. Come join us over there and thanks again everybody for listening. Keep it trashy y'all. <laughs>